Good morning. No jokes about the weather this week. That didn't work out so well last week. I'm, I'm not sure about the current proposal culture today, but in 20, 2007, rather, when I proposed to Julie, it was a never-ending stream of guys doing progressively bigger and crazier things to propose to their girlfriends. There were intricate plans, police pretending to pull people over, all kinds of crazy things. It was all a little intimidating to me to try and keep up with them. I didn't want something quite that crazy, but something good enough that Julie could happily share the story with her friends. So it was 14 years ago this past Tuesday that I was convincing Julie that we needed to take a walk at Canal Park in Delphi. Little thing was, we were driving home from a friend's wedding reception and it was nearing 10 p.m. So taking a walk in the dark maybe is a little bit weird. But anyways, I was persuasive enough and we took a walk to the red bridge that crosses the canal in Delphi. Unknown to Julie, my brother was hiding in the trees 25 yards away, uh, ready to text my parents down at the far end of the canal uh, once I got down on one knee. So I gave my little speech to Julie. I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me. She said yes. Then as I got up off of one knee, fireworks started to go off at the far end of the canal. My parents hiding in the weeds had gotten the signal and lit the fireworks. It was a great moment. And we went back to my parents' house and toasted champagne and celebrated. Julie and I were engaged for just over a year as we finished our time at Purdue. And it's in this time, in addition to planning our wedding, we started planning where we were gonna take jobs or not take jobs. And we landed in Lake County. And then we had to plan which apartment complex we would live in. Would it be Mallard Bay in Crown Point or would it be uh, Prairie Point in Merrillville? Uh, we picked Merrillville. We picked out dishes and furniture, and in general, we started most of our life together. When you're engaged, you don't enjoy all the benefits of marriage, but you start planning out where to live and what dishes to get, and you start making those financial decisions together. Your new life has started in earnest, but hasn't been fully consummated yet. Now, when Jesus rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday, he started something. Paul says in Colossians 1.18 that he was the firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn into what? Jesus is God's firstborn into his new age. When the Messiah came, he was to usher in a new age, an eternal age. Jesus is the first one to be born into that age. He's the firstborn into the new creation. Here we are back in Genesis, only this time, there's no death, no decay, because all the sin has been paid for. Sin hasn't been swept under the rug. It has been properly dealt with through Jesus' abundantly worthy sacrifice. In Romans 8:22, Paul tells us that creation is groaning in anticipation of the day when all things will be renewed. In Revelation, a new heaven descends to a new earth. But is it new as in it has never existed before? Or is it new in the sense that it is so renewed, so made over as to be new? Like when your friend gets a makeover and you say, wow, you look like a new man or a new woman. Or when you detail your car and you think, man, my car looks like new. 
Jesus has crossed the Red Sea, death, and he's entered into the promised land of God's true creation intent. Now, what does God's new creation feel and look like? Here are a few things I want us to be looking out for as we read the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus today. One, in God's new creation, we will have new bodies. Bodies, not just floating spirits, but physical bodies, not subject to headaches or sciatica or cancer or decay or death. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Two, in God's new creation, heaven and earth become fully intertwined into one existence. Now we experience them kind of as two separate things that sometimes they mesh together in those beautiful moments. But then they will be fully intertwined into one. In God's new creation, everyone is welcome. Faith, that it's real, is the only qualification. Four, in God's new creation, sin is completely paid for. Forgiveness reigns. Five, in God's new creation, there is no temple because God is among us, his presence fully among his people. And lastly for today, in God's new creation, love is what matters. Not just rote obedience to rules and commands. Love is the ethic of God's kingdom. Okay, you say, but I don't see it. That will be nice one day when I die or when Jesus comes back. So for some reason, God chose for his own reasons to enact his new creation in two parts. He initiated it on Easter 2,000 years ago and will culminate it sometime in the future. Now, why did God choose to do this in two parts? We don't know. The scriptures are, don't tell us. But I can only speculate here of two possible reasons. One, he wanted you to be there. If on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, that was it, that was the end, and the new age started in full None of us and the millions and millions of people between then and now would have a chance to believe by faith and be saved by Jesus. So he wanted you to be there too. I think he was too excited to wait until that time in the future. He was so happy with his son and the way his new age would look and feel that he had to give us glimpses of it now. Like when you buy something really good for your kid's birthday or Christmas and you can't quite wait all the way until then to give it to him. You're too excited. And so what do we make of today, right now, in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the celebration? Today we're engaged to be married. God has put a ring on our finger. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that he's real about all of this new creation stuff. Our new life together has started in earnest, but it hasn't been fully consummated yet. That's where we are with God's new age. We enjoy some of the benefits, but not all of them. And so today we're going to be opening up the scriptures to look at some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. We're going to look at these engagement stories of Jesus. As I said last week, we're going to ask some questions of each one. What do we learn about Jesus' resurrection? Can we believe it? And who is invited? So the first post-resurrection vignette that we're going to cover was covered quite well on Easter Sunday, so we'll only briefly touch on it. Mary Magdalene and some of the other women go to anoint Jesus' body with spices. Why? Because he's dead. They didn't go there expecting to see Jesus' tomb empty, but when they get there, Jesus is gone, and two angels tell them that he has risen. 
Then in John's version, Jesus appears to Mary, telling her to go tell the others. This story is recorded in all four Gospels. So let's look at two verses from John's account. He asked her, this being Jesus, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now what do we learn about Jesus' resurrection from this story? And can we believe it? Let's juxtapose it against a common objection to believing Jesus' resurrection. Science says that humans, once they die, they don't come back. That's it. First, we find the women going to the tomb because they believe what science tells us. Jesus will be dead when they get there. The ancient world believed the same thing as us. They were not expecting the resurrection. Instead, Mary finds Jesus very much a man. She thinks he's a gardener, not an alien, and very much alive. Now, can we believe this? On the basis of science alone, no. But Jesus is born, remember, into a new creation. A new creation that we will see does not have to obey all the rules of this creation. So we cannot purely on the basis of science believe. But that doesn't mean that this story doesn't give us any good reason to believe. As Crystal Kurgis pointed out on Easter, if you're going to make up a story about your Messiah coming back to life, appearing first to a group of women would be your last choice. At that time, they were not even considered legal witnesses. And the fact that all four Gospels record it gives us some reason to believe that this is what they understood happened. Now, who do we learn is invited into this new age in this story? In this story, women are the first to be told the great news of Jesus' defeat of death. They are given equal footing in, in the new age. I think it's a cool picture to think that it was Eve who first ate the fruit, and now a daughter of Eve is the first one to be told about the renewal of all things. Our next story we talked about in detail last week, so I only want to touch on a few things this week, and that's Jesus' appearance to the two travelers on their way to Emmaus. Let's look again at what we learn about Jesus' resurrection juxtaposed against a common objection to believing that it actually happened. In the swoon theory, Jesus blacked out on the cross. He didn't actually die. And then he revived himself while laying on a cold stone table in a dark tomb for three days. The road to Emmaus story challenges this view of Jesus because he walked seven miles in the afternoon desert heat. Now, if by some chance he had been able to revive himself over that time from dislocated limbs, a large spear wound in his side, and 39 whip cuts on his back, I don't think a brisk seven-mile walk while preaching the best sermon of all time was in the cards. So that fact gives us reason to believe that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead, not just had blacked out and came back. Now, do we learn anything about who is invited? to this new age through this story? Yes, we talked about it last week. Disillusioned, frustrated, ready to, ready to pack it in and quit disciples. And we also talked last week that one of the guys, they can't even remember what his name was, a nobody, that all of these people are welcome into the kingdom of God. Next, let's turn to 
right after this road to Emmaus story. The two travelers are back in Jerusalem and they're telling their tale when Jesus shows up in the upper room. And let's read it from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, those are our two travelers with the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, a common objection to Jesus raising again from the dead bodily is that the disciples just saw a ghost. Well, the disciples thought that too for a second. But we see Jesus showing him his, them his very real scars and eating some broiled fish. He shows he is no ghost. Now, can we believe it? Again, if you are the disciples and you plan to create a fake story of your new religious messiah that he actually rose again from the dead, are you going to say, okay, here's how it happened, all you potential followers. There we were, scared out of our minds, locked in the upper room, afraid from the authorities, when Jesus all of a sudden appears and we're frightened even more. And then he tells us, duh, guys, I've been telling you this all along, this is what's going to happen. Then he eats some food and he bounces. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think that's the story you're going to tell. You're, you're going to say that you knew it all along. That was the plan. You met him at a prearranged meeting place. And then you talked about your strategy to tell the whole world. So the disciples' willingness to just be honest with, guys, this is how it happened. We totally didn't know what was going on and we were scared out of our minds, is good reason to take some stock in what they said. Now, who do we learn is invited to this new age from this story? Now, it's easy for us, 2,000 years past, to look at the disciples as a group of spiritual elites that walked around healing people and preaching and all, all around being amazing people. But at this time, they're a ragtag group of cast-offs. There's a tax collector, political zealot, formerly demon-possessed, fishermen. Jesus came for everyone. His appearances post-resurrection are not to Caesar, they're not to Herod the king, not even to the local mayor or councilman. God's new age is for all people who have faith that it's real. Now this story is much beloved, and we'll see, I think, why. For some reason, Thomas wasn't there, and so Jesus gets to make a special appearance to him. So let's read that in John chapter 20, starting in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there at the last story, so he's struggling all week to believe what the disciples told him. 
And he says the now famous, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Then a week later, Jesus says, hey, Thomas, want to see my hands? Jesus isn't only coming for those who can put together all the clues from the Old Testament and point straight to Jesus. He's not coming only for those who have massive heaps of faith to conquer any issue. Jesus also comes for the pessimist, the realist, the one with all the questions. And we see Jesus' grace to make a special appearance for Thomas in his doubting. Now this story we're going to spend a little bit more time on because I think you're going to see that it is quite amazing and it is Jesus at his post-resurrection, mischievous best. So Jesus is going to appear to seven of the disciples while they're fishing. Um, so let's read it from John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who probably by this time has a real FOMO, so he's there, he's making sure he's there when they're fishing, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the, disciples whom, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This story parallels the calling of Peter. So in Luke chapter 5, the story of Peter's calling Peter had been fishing out, fishing all night and had caught nothing. He must not be a very good fisherman. Then Jesus tells Peter where to put down his nets, and they fill with so many fish that they might break. He then asks Simon to come along and fish for people. Between then and now, Simon Peter has betrayed Jesus. 
In Jesus' moment of need, Peter denies even knowing him three times. So I find it strikingly beautiful that Jesus makes sure to repeat that narrative of Peter's calling and this time asks him three times to feed his lambs and follow him. Jesus is telling Peter he forgives him. He's still on Team Jesus. Another common objection to Jesus' resurrection is that it was a hallucination. Well, this story happens many days later from Easter. So even if we give that Mary, Cleopas, and his friend, the disciples on Sunday, were all filled with so much overwhelming grief that they hallucinated Jesus, this is many days later in a completely different geographical context. And this supposed hallucination of Jesus builds a fire, cooks and eats fish. So can we believe it? Again, if you're going to make up a new world religion, you probably don't start by telling people that this, the story of your leader's incompetence and betrayal. Simon Peter becomes the leader of the movement right after this. And this is a story of his absolute incompetence to even catch fish. Instead, we see a new age of love and forgiveness, of reaching out to the one who made a mess of it all. For those who have betrayed or ran away or even spit in Jesus' face, Jesus waits with open arms and apparently some fish. Now, this next post-resurrection appearance of Jesus is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. You've probably heard many sermons on it, and I have preached many times on this passage. Uh, so we won't go in too much detail, but I did want to pick something out of it for you. If you remember, Jesus meets his disciples on a mountain and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So what do we learn about Jesus' resurrection? We learn that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and that he wants everyone to know that. So can we believe it? The disciples certainly did because immediately thereafter, this is exactly what they do. This is exactly what they set off to start doing is making disciples of all nations. Now, this new religion was not a ploy to become rich or powerful or take over nation states. So quite the opposite. Those that led this movement gained almost nothing in worldly riches. And almost all suffered a terrible death because of it. Many people might die for a religion they believe to be true, yourselves included. But who will die for a religion they know to be false? The disciples and those Jesus appeared to are the only people in history that know without a shadow of a doubt whether it's true or not, and they give their lives for it. Now, who is this invitation for? We already said it's for all people. And the word here is all people groups, all peoples, not just the Israelites. Now, we take it for granted uh, because as Americans, we see ourselves as the center of history. But we are part of that all nations. If Jesus had not said to all nations, unless you're of Jewish descent, you would not be hearing this gospel that God has a new creation that you can be a part of. So this story means everything. Now, the last one that I want to go to today is Jesus's ascension. And we're going to read it from Luke chapter 24. 
starting in verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. What do we learn about Jesus' resurrection from this story? We learn that Jesus has ascended into heaven. Now I want to say something about ascension. The word for heaven is the same as the word for sky. So it's natural to speak of heaven as above us. But we know that it's not the same as for someone, let's say, from the southern hemisphere. So I, I, I think that Jesus doesn't just disappear like he does in the other stories that we saw. He ascends into heaven because that's the standard understanding of where heaven is. That's how we say heaven is up there. So by ascending into heaven, he leaves no doubt that that's where he is in heaven, that he is accepted by God as the son of God, the Messiah. All authority has really been given to him. If he would have just disappeared like he did in the other stories, we might think, I don't know where he is. But by ascending, we know he is in heaven. Now, can we believe it? Here's the thing. We've given many good reasons to believe in the resurrection so far. This one cannot be believed only by an appeal to reason. It is by faith that we believe that Jesus is ruling from heaven. Remember, the new age doesn't operate on all of the same scientific principles and rules as this one. So Jesus can rise if he wants to. He can disappear. He can be of a body that can maybe be touched but not hugged and is in a glorious way, somehow the same but yet different. And so for all of these things that we hold in our hearts as true and good and that he's not a ghost, he's not a hallucination, that we can believe these stories, it is also, humbly, we need to remember, equally willing to say, I just don't get it. I don't believe it. Based on reason or logic or science, I see what you're saying, but I don't give it. So that we can be humble when we share the hope that we have because it is by faith that we believe. Now, Jesus, by his grace in all of these post-resurrection stories, I think gives us other reasons to help solidify that faith, that he's real, that he's a person, he eats fish, he talks to people, he walks seven miles, he was dead, and now he is alive. We have good reason to believe, but ultimately it is by faith that we believe. Now, who is it for, this invitation to the new age in this story? It's for the church, for us to remember that Jesus has won and his position is in, heaven, in heaven is evidence of that. He is in charge. Now, what difference does it make? It makes all the difference. Jesus' resurrection ushers in the start of God's new age, his new creation, the already but not yet of his kingdom rule on earth as in heaven. Jesus, the king, sits on the throne beside the Father ruling. His spirit indwells his holy presence in his people as they enjoy the first fruits of the new age. We are engaged to be married, as it were, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, looking forward to our new dwelling place in the new heavens and new earth, looking forward to the celebration. 
looking forward to seeing all the ones who have gone before. And all that looking forward informs the present moment. We see from our perspective of the new age. And if this new creation has already begun, why not shrug off our tedious religious performance, our tiring self-preservation, and our unnecessary divisions? Why not live in the unconstrained love and wild acceptance of God's new age? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of the way you work. We messed it up all those years ago in the garden. You created a magnificent world for us to share in with you. We thought you were holding us back, so we rebelled. We spit in your face, and we haven't been doing much better these days either. We still think we know better. But all the rules we put up for ourselves, we inevitably break. What we needed was a complete overhaul, a restart. And in Jesus, you did that. You wiped away our mistakes, our rebellion. You gave us a suffering king. You gave us Jesus. And on the third day, he rose victorious over our greatest curse and enemy, death. You inaugurated this new creation you had been promising. God, we long to live as fully as possible in that new creation. We know by faith that one day we will. And today we want to live as fully in it as we can through your spirit. Teach us the forgiveness, the freedom, and the love of Jesus. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. To you be all the glory and the power and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Please stand for today's benediction. As Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 2, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of, their hand, all the, trees of the field will clap their hands. Go in peace. <laughs>